making sense of EU. Welcome to Making Sense of EU, a podcast where scientific research sheds light on the pressing issues of EU affairs. Making Sense of EU is brought to you by the Institut d'Etudes Européennes of the Université Libre de Bruxelles. This series on the challenges of liberal democracy in the EU is a product of the Horizon Europe research project Red Spinel and is co-funded by the European Union. My name is Maria Isabel Solevila and I am your host. We're back with a new episode of Making Sense of EU and this time we will try to learn more about how the policies surrounding economic governance in the European Union can fuel dissensus. Can the EU legitimize policies and instruments that can seem like intermissions into sovereign state politics? Is EU economic governance democratic? I have two special guests that will help us figure this out. We met during the Council for European Studies conference in Reykjavik, Iceland, where they were presenting the first results of their research for a Horizon Europe Red Spinal project. Thomas Christensen is professor of political science at Luis Guido Carli University. He's executive director of the Journal of European Integration and co-editor of the European Administration Governance book series at Palgrave Macmillan. Amandine Crespi is professor of political science and European studies at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. Her research deals with socioeconomic governance and policies in the European Union with a focus on the role of ideas, discourse and conflict. Welcome to Making Sense of EU to both of you. During the Eurozone crisis, EU economic governance practices and their legitimacy, or lack thereof, became breeding grounds for dissensus. The COVID-19 pandemic and the economic instruments developed mark an important shift in the way these policies are shaped. What can we say has happened from austerity to next generation EU and the recovery and resilience facility? How things changed? Many colleagues have argued that, you know, policymakers in, in one way or another have learned from the mistakes of the past, that basically in the years following the financial crisis, um, that the policies that were implemented by the European Union, um, this kind of austerity-based approach was not really efficient in rebooting the European economy. So we had low growth, high employment still in many countries in Europe, especially in Southern Europe among the youth, and especially a chronic lack of investment, both public and private. And this was a problem, this stagnation and Uh, and also exacerbated inequalities as a result of austerity. So that's one way to look at it. But I think another way, which is just as important, if not more important, is about politics and about how um, those issues of economic and social governance have become politicized. I think this uh, very visible rise of radical movements, both left and right, and their electoral successes as well in many countries across Europe. And I think that at a certain point, European elites have really felt type of existential threat that some political movements or parties would eventually come to power and advance a radical reform agenda of the EU and this kind of deconstruction of the most, uh, let's say, integrated and supranational elements of the EU. Politicization is often viewed as a negative thing that creates contestation, dissensus. I know that others have different views, but would you agree, Professor Christensen, that these threats 
have made European institutions change the stick for the carrot? Or are there other explanations in your view? Another way of looking at that is also to recognize that these were quite different crises. At least in the eyes of some, the Eurozone crisis was a bit homemade. You know, countries were at fault for overburdening themselves with debt. And therefore, you could say, well, to some extent, there are issues about responsibility and guilt, what we call moral hazard in academia. But on the other hand, the pandemic was an external crisis that happened to everyone. And no no one's fault. And no one's fault. And therefore, a better reason, let's say, for, for solidarity at the European level. I'm not endorsing that view. I'm just saying that that is perhaps politically making it easier to borrow these rather large amounts of debt to help countries recover after the pandemic. Aren't these instruments also a way of supranational institutions to gain more power when it comes to economic governance in the member states? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what we see is this continuous buildup, for better or worse, depending on how one assesses the type of policies that are being conducted by the EU. But it's true that if you look at, you know, especially the powers of the European Commission to scrutinize the way in which countries make their budgets, but also now with the resilience and recovery package, how they spend the money, the um, you know multiplication of the social conditionalities, so the conditions and the ways in which national states have to spend the money. That certainly you know a positive way to talk about this would be to say, well, we have an increasingly integrated economic governance, and that's good news after all. And then the more critical way to look at it would be that, you know, we have an intrusion, a far-reaching intrusion of the EU into national policies and budget making, which, uh, you know, should be the prerogatives of sovereign states. That's, you know, a very good observation. The term that some academics have used for this, what has happened to the EU is failing forward. You know, even though we have crises, which we don't immediately manage to solve, we nevertheless build stronger institutions and build a more resilient European construction in the process of managing these crises. And we've seen that with the Eurozone crisis, we've seen that with Brexit, we've seen that with the pandemic, and we are now seeing that also with Ukraine. So for us academics, this is also a bit of a paradox that's difficult to solve and to explain. Because on the one hand, we have growing dissensus, we have more and more skepticism about the European Union, more and more people voting for anti-European parties. Yet on the other hand, at the same time, the European institutions are constantly being strengthened and we're deepening our integration process. But in the long run, I think we're all concerned that this paradox becomes unsustainable because if people are increasingly critical of the EU, but their views don't filter through into some sort of political change at the European level, and the technocrats just keep building new institutions, ultimately this tension will become too great. So one has to be concerned about that. This power that's bringing contestation and that's feeding this paradox, where do you think it's headed? Can it at some point become unsustainable, like you just proposed, Professor Christensen? Or is there a way of shifting towards more legitimacy as the institutions gain power? There would be ways of shifting, but I think that there's a lack of political will to do so. Then we keep on integrating the policies and the policy making without some of the basic elements of democratic legitimation that should go with this process. And therefore... Which would be, for example... 
Well, I think that one of the critical analysis that is already emerging from our common research in Red Spinel about economic governance is the dominance of executive institutions over economic governance. Executive institutions meaning, on the one hand, national governments and their administrations, and on the other hand, the European Commission. They are in a bilateral fashion, deciding, deliberating, or even negotiating over the directions of national reforms, of national policies. To the detriment of parliaments. Exactly. And national parliaments, as well as the European parliaments, are the big losers in this increased integration of economic governance because they are marginalized. They have no decisive decision-making powers. They are bystanders. They can comment. They can provide you know, input in some ways, but this has no impact on the true decisions and on the policies. And this is problematic because, I mean, the core a legitimizing principle in Europe, in European democracies, is still the principle of the election and of electoral representation. You've been looking at legitimacy in particular. How do you feel these policies impacted directly? If we start from the observation that there's a disconnection between, on the one hand, what happens in Brussels among the institutions and the decision makers and what people in the street believe, then you ask for what is a possible solution. I totally agree that decision makers need to be more open, more transparent, more responsive and so on. But at the same time, if I may be maybe slightly contrary not to you, Amandine, but to the general perception, I think also the people need to be better understanding about the requirements of governing these complex entities that we have now in the world, whether it's modern welfare states or the European Union. There needs to be some comprehension that there are no easy solutions to the problems that we face in this world, that a lot of things require really a lot of technical and scientific expertise. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the Eurozone crisis, but when we talk about the global pandemic, for example, I think it's it's also important and indeed legitimate to listen to health experts, to vaccination experts, to medical scientists and so on, and to listen to their advice. And politicians have not always done that. And as a result, lives have been lost. So that's, of course, not to blame the people for not understanding what is going on, but it is, if anything, an appeal to politicians, to the political class, to be a bit more honest with their own populations about the nature of our governance and to explain better why it is that we rely on complex and obscure European processes to take our decisions. Well, I mean, about expertise, it is true that, um, you know, efficient policymaking uh, requires expertise, but at the same time, some problems just require also political choices. Uh, and just to give an example, uh, which is quite topical, we've had recently both in Belgium and in France a massive backlash on pension reforms, right, uh, that the EU was also promoting. And pension reforms are very complex, and there's a lot of expertise about this, but also there isn't only one way to achieve the same objective, which is basically the financial sustainability of the pension systems, right, in the future. 
And the problem at the moment is that European governance, and especially in the form of the European semester, does not really provide a democratic forum where those different policy options can be deliberated and weighted among each other. Very often what happens is, you know, some kind of expertise is being used to develop one concept and then promote it from the top and then enshrine it in the country-specific recommendations, and then it should be passed through parliaments. And kind of a one-size-fits-all solution. Yeah, and later down the line, you know, people found themselves confronted with those policy recipes and just disagree with them and bring in other arguments in the discussion and perhaps other interests and other ideas and other views, and then you have a political backlash. And how important are politics in all this discussion and the trends you mentioned before, the idea of more polarization in the way people vote, more uh, populist versus progressist competition in EU politics when it comes to shaping economic governance? I mean, we saw during a period that one trend was more salient and in other periods another. How do you feel this competition between these two trends of politics play out when it comes to defining these policies? The fact that uh, European decisions often appear sort of top-down, elitist and non-negotiable and so on is also a result of the nature of politics at the European level being quite fundamentally different from those that people are used to from their at own the countries. Yeah? In traditional national politics, whether it's in Europe, in America, we are used to you know, fairly simple choices between one or the other side. And, and you fight elections over these choices and one side wins and the other side might lose. I'm simplifying, but I think broadly that is what people used to, to have a choice that you can vote for. At the European level, yes, we have a dominance of the executive and experts being quite central, technocrats and so on. But we also have a nature of politics that is built not on making choices and having winners and losers, but on building consensus and having a compromise solution that everybody can live with. And that takes a lot of time to build. That's why European decision-making also is so lengthy and often very time-consuming. And harder to communicate also. Uh, but, but then once you have it, it's very difficult to explain to the wider public what ha happened in this process. You know, it's what we call, you know, a sausage factory. You don't want to know what happened on the inside, but uh, you might like the result at the end. And it's very difficult to then unpack that and say, well, you have to live with this result, even if it doesn't address all your concerns. And then the problem with 27 member states is that some groups and some member states may complain about one side of the deal and others may complain about the other side of the deal. And that is, I think, a structural feature of the way in which Europe is governed. It's hard to see another way because I think we do like, I personally do like the idea of consensualism and cooperation and compromise. But what I would hope for is that politicians are more honest in communicating to their own populations. Look, we went to Brussels. We wanted something else. We didn't get everything we wanted. This is the best compromise that we could get instead of pretending that they won everything they were asking for or not discussing it at all with their populations. But in times of dissensus, consensus doesn't seem maybe like the sexiest idea to propose to your electorate. Yeah, that's where I would perhaps draw a distinction, which may sound very subtle and theoretical, but I think is not, between consensus and compromise, right? I think if we want to avoid to have really this deep dissensus about 
you know, whether it is better for people to actually have their country in or out of the European Union, which is really what we've seen emerging in some countries and in some parts of the EU. You need to have those contradictory debates about policy alternatives. So you need to first recognize that there cannot be an imminent consensus of what should be done, that perhaps there are diverging interests, diverging ideas. You have the discussion and the deliberation, and then, of course, you need you know mechanisms to regulate conflicts and come to a compromise. And then I absolutely agree with Thomas that the communication of the compromise and its underpinning and its implications is tremendously important and is also a responsibility of national elites that they do not assume. And what happens when the question is no longer, do you want to be in and out? We want to change the nature of the EU from within, which is part of the discussion we've been having in the last couple of days. The issue now is really not are you in or out, but rather what kind of Europe do we want? What kind of Europe do we want to build? And there very quickly we fall into the trap, not we, but a lot of people around Europe fall into the trap of believing that these sort of choices can be made in the traditional way of politics that we know from the nation state. You know, winners and losers, left versus right, green versus industrial and, and so on. And like I said, this is not how Europe works. We need to build compromise. We need to accept that not everybody can go all the way. And um, while elections and party politics play their part, we have a European Parliament, we have elections next year in May, and that's important and it needs to be strengthened what these elections deliver. I don't think we can ever expect a European Union which makes its decisions only based on that because that would really create a lot of disenchantment and losers. So the real challenge, I think, for Europe in the coming years, in the coming decade, is to manage this balancing act between more democratic input, more listening to the people, more input from citizens, including those who are dissatisfied with what the European Union is doing, while at the same time not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and losing all the achievements that Europe has been brought to citizens um, over the past 60 years, many of which people take for granted without knowing necessarily where they come from. Which role do you think economic governance will play in the next European elections? I think it could play a very important role, especially because some of the reforms that are ongoing, that are on the table, are quite important. Now, what I find very interesting in this debate is that we truly see the multi-level nature of economic governance with investment capacities having to be considered both at national level, but also at European level. And there we need coherence in, you know, the direction. So certainly the green transition and how to finance the necessary investments will be at the heart of the European campaign. And then if I may mention just one last point, which is related, is about the social dimension of economic governance. There have been quite dynamic agenda over the past few years, notably with the European Pillar of Social Rights and a range of new directives for regulating labor markets Europe-wide. And I think that this dynamic will also be at the center with you know, issues like not only the green transition, but the just transition, but also the regulation of platform work. Member states have rejected the proposals by the European Parliament to democratize European elections, which we know rather well 
not only among academics, but also in the wider public, that these European elections are not really that European, that not many people really look at that in terms of the choices that Amadine just said that Europe needs to make. The European Parliament, which is, after all, the democratic elected representative of the European people, made a number of proposals about how to improve this perception of the European elections, which is to say having candidates that are lead candidates for the whole of Europe, having a, a transnational list of candidates that could be elected by anyone across Europe. You may or may not agree with that, but that's what the European Parliament, as our representatives, have been proposed. And it's the member states who yesterday rejected that. We will not have that in the rule books because the member states do not want that. They want to maintain a greater degree of influence. So that is, I think, what some people would call hypocritical, you know, to say, yes, we want more democracy, but then when the moment comes to reject the demands of the European Parliament. And that, I think, does not help. It does not help to allow citizens, voters, to better identify what choices there are at the European level. And it keeps them somewhat in the prison of national politics and looking at issues more from a national perspective rather than from a European perspective. And that's, and that's part of the poverty of European democracy. Well, thank you very much, Thomas Christensen and Madine Crispy, for spending the time to explain to our audiences all these topics about EU economic governance in the context of dissensus. Thank you, Maria. Thanks. Making sense of EU.